Good morning. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio with Middle East Forum Century Radio. This has been an exciting year in 2018. Ones of ups and downs. The region of that we cover on this show, moving to the left, to the right, having Islamists and autocrats and theocrats and Democrats and illiberal authoritarians and every single kind of governing system in the panoply of different power structures having some sort of say in how the region has been influenced this year. Whether it's the re-entry of Russia into Middle East game making, the retreat of the United States, the rise of a more powerful Israel aligning with new Gulf Arab allies, or a new bloc constituting Turkey, Qatar, and Iran, the democracy uh, that has been trying to grow in Iraq only to see it being subjected to foreign interests again for the 15th year in a row, seeing Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the president of Turkey, taking power and consolidating it to the chagrin of all the minorities in his country. Looking at Iran and the situation with the sanctions being re-invoked by President Trump, and certainly the rise of different ISIS affiliates outside of Syria, in Afghanistan, in Iran, in Libya, in Nigeria, and in other countries. There is a lot to talk about this morning. But more than so of anything else that we've been able to cover on this show, there is something that happened just in the last two days, I would say that it's worth discussing in our opening 10 minutes. And that is the call for Israeli elections in 2019 to see if Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will be elected to a term which will see him as Israel's longest serving Prime Minister if he is able to win. Now, Sunday morning, taking you back to where we're at. And by the way, Merry Christmas to everyone who is celebrating and certainly a Happy New Year to everyone for next week. This is the last show of 2018. On Sunday, December 23rd, at 9 a.m. Israel time, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was able to gather all of the heads of the parties that constitute his governing coalition in the Knesset, Israel's parliament, and said, it is time for us to move our nation to elections. Look at the backdrop of the challenges that the Israelis have to face, especially right now, after so many different decisions were made prior to the calling for these elections. Only last week, President Trump, as we covered on our topic last on our program last Wednesday, declared that he would be willing to remove U.S. forces from Syria. Russia now enters the country even further. Turkey prepares an army for invasion on their southern border into northern Syria. The Iraqis start redeploying their Shia militias to the west of their border on the Syrian area. Only last night, there were reports of six Israeli F-16 fighter jets launching 16 missiles into Damascus to allegedly take out leaders of Hezbollah, the Iranian uh, proxy group in Lebanon, a Shia militia, Shia terror organization, a terror army that it now has to face. Israel internally is also facing many challenges, whether it's the integration of the ultra-Orthodox Jewish population into the army, their continuing strife that goes on with their Israeli Arab minority population, the challenge of moving all the military bases from the center of the country to the south of the Negev Desert. 
You also have right now a crisis that erupted only last week where the American Navy may no longer be willing to dock at Israel's largest port in Haifa in the north of the country because it has been leased to a Chinese company to manage for the next 50 years. Israel is certainly facing many different issues, a whole plethora of which I did not even mention just in the last two minutes. But why has Bibi called for the election now? There's three reasons that we have to get into. Not just the external threats, the internal threats, or the global shift of the population, but as a forthcoming article by the president of our organization, the Middle East Forum, Daniel Pipes, will hint at, and this is the title of the article, there will be a tectonic shift in the way that global opinion is situated towards Israel. The theory goes like this, and we'll have him maybe come on the program next week to elaborate further. On one hand, the Arab world is getting closer to Prime Minister Netanyahu, the Israeli government, and the state of Israel. You see Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, allegedly having a handshake with the prime minister only a few months ago. You have the president of Chad, who was willing to visit Israel. You have many different situations where you have the Israeli commercial base supplying key technology needs and initiatives to Arab countries, whether it's to address their water problems, their ecological issues, some of their intelligence needs, and you even have Israeli ministers, as we've gone over on this program in the past, visiting the United Arab Emirates, Oman, for different sports, cultural, economic, and societal uh, uh, you know, closening initiatives, if you want to call it that, or getting the two groups together. That's the first thing. We have a new uh, uh, thawing in relations between the Israelis and the Arabs. So what better time to hold an election and to reconstitute your power base and to declare that you're here for another four-year term rather than taking advantage of this thaw in relations? The second reason that Netanyahu has decided to go to elections now is for more of a pernicious nature. The Attorney General of Israel, Avi Mandelblit, has declared that he is ready to start assessing four separate recommended indictments against the prime minister and his associates for different alleged corruption scandals. The first, case 1000, second case 2000, case 3000, and case 4000, all appropriately named. Case 1000 deals with the alleged illicit bribery of the prime minister for favors in return for pink champagne for his wife and expensive cigars for him. Case 2000 deals with a media bribery scandal where the prime minister allegedly would bring a law forward to weaken Sheldon Adelson's largest Israeli daily newspaper, Israel Hayom, in return for providing more media manipulation associated with Yedio Dachronot, which is another newspaper that competes with Adelson's media enterprise there. The third scandal deals with submarines, and not the production of them, but more the maintenance of them in Israeli ports. Netanyahu's closest legal advisor was implicated, and this is an alleged implication, there hasn't been any trial yet, but was implicated by state witnesses that he was trying to offer bribes to German officials responsible for the construction of these submarines, the, the Dolphin-class submarine, in return for being able to get the ports of Germany to deal with the maintenance contracts of these alleged silent killers that have Israel's second strike nuclear capability, and this is all alleged, by the way, of uh, uh, providing those in Germany rather than having that maintenance sourced 
in Haifa itself, in the uh, country of Israel. And the fourth allegation is the most damning and the most serious, with the prime minister being caught on tape, with electronic information being available, with different minister uh, and, and ministry director generals implicating the prime minister in his case, where he was seen as trying to get favorable coverage in Israeli news outlets, specifically one, Walla, W-A-L-L-A, which is one of the most read Israeli political news sites in the entire country, in return for giving a key approval when he was serving as communications minister three or four years ago for the purchase of Israel's largest telephone company by Israel's largest satellite television provider. This is the Case 4000 Yes Walla scandal. Now, during an election time, there's no tradition like we see in the United States where the Department of Justice or the Israeli equivalent, the Ministry of Justice, would be willing to halt investigations or indictment proceedings before the actual consummation of these elections taking place. Netanyahu could be in the last few weeks of the throes of the next general election and an indictment could come down on him. His logic for calling elections now Better to get this out of the way and better to get the public credibility of being reelected while he faces an indictment scandal. Not scandal, but a, but, a, but a pending indictment if it was to come down from the attorney general rather than trying to get into his own situation where he would have to run while he is serving under the eye of the attorney general's uh, Occam's razor, if we want to call it, which is right over his head. And the third reason, it's because of the external issues that we spoke about. If he is to face Iran and Syria and Turkey and all of these greater threats, he must be able to have a public mandate to face them rather than the current fourth year of term where he's currently serving right now. After these messages, further analysis on Israel's elections and David Reboy joining us to discuss the Khashoggi affair. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus. W-A-T-C-H dot O-R-G. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today, or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio. Our next guest 
is the vice president of the Security Studies Group, one of the most advanced think tanks regarding American national security initiatives in Washington, D.C., having only started some two years ago and now influencing almost every step of President Trump and the White House's national security decision-making, especially in the realm of strategic communications. I'm glad to welcome David Reboy to the program. Hey, Greg. It's great to be with you. David, thanks for joining us this morning. So I want to get right into it to discuss an article that was published by Suad Mechanet and Greg Miller in the Washington Post on December 22nd, titled Jamal Khashoggi's Final Months as an Exile in the Long Shadow of Saudi Arabia. And, and there was one piece of this article that really, sh- that really came out at me and, and, and that I par- paid particular attention to, and I'd like to get your opinion on it, since your group has been covering the Khashoggi affair for the last 11 weeks. The article uh, in the middle of it begins, perhaps most problematic for Khashoggi were his connections to an organization funded by Saudi Arabia's regional nemesis. Text messages between Khashoggi and an executive at Qatar Foundation International show that that executive, Maggie Mitchell Salem, an important name to remember, at times shaped the columns he submitted to the Washington Post, proposing topics, drafting material, and prodding him to take a harder line against the Saudi government. Khashoggi also appears to have relied on a researcher and translator affiliated with the organization, which promotes Arabic language education in the United States. It seems here, David, that the Qatar Foundation is promoting a lot more than just Arabic education. Could you care to comment on that? Sure. Well, what you see here in this uh, Washington Post article is what uh, uh, they call in the public relations world limited modified hangout, which is they, 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 there is, um, there's news that, uh, that some terrible story about your client or about yourself is about to drop. So you rush out there with uh, sort of the best possible version of the story that, uh, that modifies it uh, a little bit, makes it more palatable. And then when the, uh, when the damaging stuff comes out, you rush out and you say, well, this is all old news. So I think this is what uh, the Washington Post has been kind of trying, transparently doing because they, um, they fear that their, um, their lionization of Khashoggi, I mean, ever since, um, ever since Khashoggi's death in the beginning of, of October, um, really, the, uh, as, I, as I say in my, uh, in my recent article at securitystudies.org, um, the Washington Post has functioned as the most uh, relentless and powerful anti-Saudi, lo- anti-Saudi lobbying shop in, uh, in Washington, um, generating article after article, both lionizing Khashoggi and, and, uh, and attacking um, the Saudis. So now we see that there is a major revelation, um, or, or several of them, about Khashoggi's work as really what could only be described as an intelligence asset of the Qatar Foundation. Now, the Qatar Foundation, is, as you mentioned, it's not just you know the way they, they characterize it as, as kind of cute. Um, they say a, you know a, a, um, an organization funded by the Qatari government. Well, it's run completely top to bottom by uh, by Qatari officials in the service of their strategic um, strategic interests from top to bottom. Um, the, um, interestingly enough, the Daily Beast has done um, some great work about the Qatar Foundation and, um, <clears throat> and about its, uh, its close ties to, to Brotherhood officials and to, uh, to uh, uh, anti-Semitic, anti-American extremists. Um, 
in, uh, in in Qatar and also sort of using it as a as a platform to to go out to the wider world. So this is the the Qatar Foundation is not uh, you know some educational institution. It's 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 um, it's an intelligence outpost, and um, and uh, it you know they they use this this uh, this tremendous resource to uh, attack their enemies regionally and globally. Now now it's not just the Khashoggi is. Uh, seen to be affiliated with the Qatar Foundation. But we also see that he has connections to the Council on American Islamic Relations, widely regarded as a Muslim Brotherhood front group in the United States. Secondly, to the government of Turkey and its most high-ranking officials. I mean, there must have been a reason that Khashoggi was in Turkey, besides the fact that he was trying to obtain documents from the Saudi consulate, which would allow him to get married to his Turkish girlfriend. There is right. a, 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 a new axis which is present, which is between the Turks, the Qataris, Muslim Brotherhood groups, and both Turkey and Qatar are known for their hosting and promotion of Muslim Brotherhood ideology. And now here we have Khashoggi writing for the Washington Post, espouting, espousing anti-Saudi opinions, especially after he's putting himself in self-imposed exile after the rise of Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of that country. And if we do an analysis... Of the articles of what he put out in those 10 to 11 months where he started really having anti-Saudi fervor in his writings, and we pair them with the text messages that came out from his own communications with these intelligence interlocutors, you know, let's call it his handlers. What can we now make of the Khashoggi affair after he was killed in the Saudi consulate at the beginning of October? Is there is there something more pernicious from the accusers side, from the Turkish and the Qatari media side, especially Al Jazeera, which has been covering this with a 24-hour blog since the incident took place, that we can link back to his writings? Well, sure. I mean, I'm sure there is. There's so much we do not know. Um, we got a little taste of uh, what was in those text messages, and the text messages sh- are showing that um, that uh, uh, Salem in uh, at the Qatar Foundation was absolutely working as as his handler. I mean, there's literally no better way to put it. Um, she she was she was urging to take a you know to take a much harder line against um, against uh, Qatar's uh, chief chief enemy in in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. She was she was translating. She was put. Uh, she was providing research. Um, she was she was doing everything she she can to to advance uh, that particular narrative. Now, um, you know, it's an interesting question, um, which is kind of yet to um, uh, you know the answer is yet to be revealed. Is is whether or not they they felt Khashoggi was more um, was more valuable uh, dead to them or alive. But either way, he was. Um, Again, as I as I said it in my piece, either way he was uh, an intelligence asset of the uh, of the Qatari regime. I think there's so much that we that we still do not know. Um, there's been a rumor floating around uh, uh, D.C. that um, you know people who are who are involved in, um, in in Middle East issues that uh, that there were indeed receipts to wire transfers um, found in um, in Khashoggi's apartment from uh, from the Qataris. So, uh, you know, so it's possible he was, you know, literally actually taking money um, from from one place or another. I mean, the guy has to live, and 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 the Washington Post isn't uh, isn't uh, isn't funding him lavishly. 
uh, if at all. So, um, so there are, there's still a lot of questions that need to be answered that I think will 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 fill out the uh, fill out the picture. But what we know so far is is pretty is pretty damning. Uh, the other part of this too is the uh, is sort of the the U.S. side. Um, why was why was uh, the the death of uh, of this this guy who could reasonably be called a um, an intelligence operative? Um, made into such a, such a, a big deal. I mean, he, um, he, he offers his own opinion of his arrangement with the Cutter Foundation in an exchange with Salem on August 7th. The article in the Washington Post goes and says, Khashoggi and Salem seem to understand how his association with a Cutter-funded entity could be perceived, reminding one another to keep the arrangement, in quotation marks, discreet. He voiced concern that his family could be vulnerable. As she reviewed the draft of the August 7th column, she accused him of pulling punches. You moved off topic and seemed to excuse Riyadh, she said. It's highly problematic. The next day, he wrote back that he had submitted a column saying, they're going to hang me when it comes out. There's somewhat of a, of a foreshadowing here where Khashoggi knows two things. One, that his working, even if it's in a discreet arrangement, with a Qatari government-funded entity could be problematic to his family in Saudi Arabia. The second, and, and let's remind our listeners right now, that the Saudi government is right now in the middle of a feud with the Qataris, which doesn't just transcend their borders, but in every single country where these two entities, where these two sovereigns are active, there is an ongoing information battlefield where they are competing with one another. And if anything, the Qataris saw a way to use Khashoggi post-mortem by putting the last nail in the Saudi public relations coffin by taking someone that they were using as an intelligence asset in their information operations against the Saudis and then transforming his legacy from one of being an asset into now being a legend of Washington Post journalism. I mean, the second item I wanted to talk about here was not just that Khashoggi was aware that his family might be vulnerable, but he realized that him being an intelligence apparatus, or not, not an apparatus, but, but an asset being used in this wider information operation, was essentially having him engaged in a type of warfare that could damage Saudi interests. So he knew about the risk associated with his work on behalf of the Qatar Foundation in the Washington Post, and perhaps he was even prophetic in declaring his own demise in that August 7th text message what, what do you think about that line of thought yeah no i i think that's uh, i think that's absolutely right if you read some of these text messages specifically the one that that you just read from uh, from from august you see something um you see something pretty familiar if you've looked if you've kind of read about the history of espionage is you see a handler pushing a um pushing an asset or or or, or a source really really hard and sometimes harder than they are, um, you know, sometimes harder than a position that they want to take on their own because they understand the risks. But, you know, sometimes, you know, your handler is reckless and um, and your handler is always is always uh, trying to balance uh, whether or not to uh, to push too hard. And uh, and I think that's what we're seeing here. I think he understood the risks um, and and absolutely understood what was um you know, his, sort of his role in in the regional um, in the regional um, 
battle between uh, the Qataris and the Saudis uh, on this. And, um, and yeah, I mean, there was another part in the, um, I, I think it was put in there as a kind of mitigating uh, factor, a little, a little detail about uh, Khashoggi trying to seek funds for a think tank um, in Saudi Arabia. Now, that's, you know, that, that gives us a little tidbit of information, but it doesn't tell us the whole story. You know, the whole story, um, the, the whole story um, in, involves, you know, who is he going to in Saudi Arabia? Is he going to a, uh, a, an MBS rival um, uh, in, the, in, the, in the royal court? Is he going to someone else? I mean, who is he going? Who is he trying to get funding from in Saudi Arabia? It could be he, he was... He was um, he was propositioning the um, uh, uh, rivals of, of MBS who are actually supportive of Qatar in Saudi Arabia. I mean, this you know this is stuff that that we don't know. And I mean, if that's the case, then he was indeed playing a more dangerous game than uh, than 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 we know. Um, so it's it's a lot of stuff. I I am almost certain that uh, you know I mean as we said that uh, another outlet is going to um, is going to blow the lid off this uh, case in a more substantial way sometime soon, and um, and it'll it'll be fascinating to uh, to learn what's going on. But this is definitely rather than it being a uh, a story of of um, you know the the Saudis killing this poor journalist in, um, in in Turkey, it'll emerge to be a a real kind of spy story. And, so uh, let's and let's make one, clear that that we're not yeah. excusing the actions. Of, of the Saudi agents of Katani, who was who was alleged, the alleged mastermind of Al Asiri from Saudi intelligence, who masterminded the operation on the ground, the 15 individuals implicated in the killing that are now facing a Saudi trial. But like you said, this is not a one-sided story of state suppression of an American-based Saudi journalist. This is a wide web of information, of disinformation, of other countries' sovereign interests involved. This is, a it almost seems like a classic Cold War espionage story rather than just the one-sided example that you had brought out beforehand. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's right. And, and the other fascinating part about this, which, uh, which I, I, I dwelt on in, in the article as well, is what, are, what were the motivations of the U.S. media in... Um, uh, in, in, in taking this story and carrying this banner um, so uh, so so vigorously, and um, and you know I, I think it's you know they're coming they're coming to it not so much invested in the Saudi Qatari um, uh, feud, but they have their own uh, they have their own reasons. So some of those some of their own reasons include being anti-Saudi um, because. Um, uh, because uh, Saudi Arabia and and uh, and Israel tried all that they could to uh, to oppose Obama's uh, JCPOA, the, the Iran deal. Um, another one is that uh, is that Saudi Arabia was um, was key in opposition to the Muslim Brotherhood takeover of the Middle East, uh, beginning with uh, with rolling back the uh, the gains that the Brotherhood had made in Egypt um, in in 2013, and. Um, so, so there's and, and and another aspect, of course, is that uh, you know the, the Trump family, uh, Jared Kushner and, uh, and and Donald Trump himself, and as well as the administration, have long-standing um, good relations with uh, with the uh, with the Saudi monarchy, especially with uh, with uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. 
and um, so it's it's kind of created a perfect storm where where you know the, the Saudis were sort of the, the perfect enemy for a number of reasons for the U.S. media, and um, they need to be frankly I, I think they need to be transparent and honest about what those reasons are. So just to uh, conclude our conversation, David, there's an article that Ben Rhodes, the former National Security Communications czar for the Obama administration, an architect of the pro-Iran deal echo chamber that came out after the signing of that agreement, wrote in The Atlantic on October 12th about the Khashoggi affair. And I'd like our listeners now to think about the final paragraph from that article, viewing Khashoggi through the lens of being a Qatari agent, rather than as an innocent journalist. Rhodes writes, It's not too late to heed Khashoggi's warnings, to understand that while Saudi Arabia is a historic partner of the United States, our interests are not totally aligned with the Saudi leaderships and our values are most definitely not. We should cease all support for the war in Yemen and lead an effort to address its humanitarian crisis. We should balance our principled opposition to the Iranian regime's nefarious behavior with a return to the diplomatic agreement that prevents that regime from obtaining a nuclear weapon. We should resume an aggressive transition away from a reliance on fossil fuels. We should support countries like Canada that have been bullied by the Saudis when they spoke out on human rights issues. We should cease military sales until the truth about Khashoggi's disappearance comes out and make clear that our support going forward is not without conditions. And we could once more stand up for universal rights, even if it means inviting the opposition of those who have a very different view of justice. It sounds to me like Rhodes now is channeling a Qatari and Iranian platform to the pages of the Atlantic with him not knowing that Khashoggi was acting as a unilateral information agent of the Qatari government in line with the Council on American Islamic Relations views and that of the Turkish government. What has happened here is the Qataris have been able to boomerang their viewpoints through the death of Khashoggi into creating an anti-Saudi echo chamber in the United States because of what they were writing or, or asking Khashoggi to write in his articles. Now, I'm not trying to blame Qatar for Khashoggi's death, but by them inviting him into this two-sided Potomac uh, two-step, if you want to call it that, of what was going on on the opinion of the United States regarding Saudi Arabia, they invited him into a disaster zone. And now we see officials like Rhodes basically echoing the Qatari position. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that quote from Rhodes is, is, uh, is, is, is pretty amazing. I mean, well, have been written in Doha. Uh, it, was, it was exactly the talking points. It was exactly Qatari talking points. But, but more than that, it contains some, some interesting code about, um, uh, about the Muslim Brotherhood, frankly. That uh, that was that was right in there talking about um, aligning with democratic movements that may not share our view of justice. Well, that's exactly who he's talking about. That's exactly who he's talking about. And and um, and as I said, it seems like he's still um, he's still uh, kind of nurturing some um, some some anger at the Saudis for um, for interfering with the um, the uh, Obama. Um, Middle East democratization program, which heavily involved the Brotherhood and, and political Islamists uh, in the region. I mean, that's who he's talking about. Without, I mean, he knows that he can't take to the pages of the Atlantic and uh, and confirm uh, the the suspicions of the right by saying yes, the Obama administration supported 
uh, the Islamist takeover of the Middle East. But he, in fact, did just that with, uh, with, with different language. And I think it's fascinating. David Reboy, yeah. Vice President of the Security Studies Group. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. My pleasure. After these messages, a look into faith in the Middle East. Fascism was the danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of nonviolent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. As I was uh, ruminating over 2018 and its Middle East implications, especially what happened in the region and what we think will happen in 2019, I found myself reading an article from America's Jesuit magazine, America, the Jesuit Review, written by Phil Clay, titled, Deployment to Iraq changed my view of God, country, and humankind. So did coming home. Clay tells us about his time as working as an information operations officer for the American Army while serving in Iraq. On one tour where he was responsible for trying to accumulate all of the news of the day and presenting it to the generals who are making the decisions on American strategy on a day-to-day basis. He talks about how he had a gradual leaving of his faith when he went into the battlefield, and then when his tour was coming up for an end, he was able to refine God in his sacrosanct mission in protecting American interests in Iraq and the execution of the strategy which was trying to rebuild that country after the departure of Saddam in April of 2003. One specific quote that I found interesting in this article was about how he was able to combine service to his country, his faith to his maker, and also the mission that he was deployed on when he was in that country. And I'd like to to give you an excerpt and then give you a little bit of thought on which was actually coming out of this. And so, though I struggle with faith, faith not only in God, but in my country, my church, and my fellow men, I go to mass. I return to doubt and confusion and uncertainty. I return to a social gathering, to a meal, to the experience of music, to the image of our tortured God, to the recitation of words. That moment when everybody in the church trips over the phase, 
consubstantial with the Father, to the hands of my fellow congregants offering me peace, to the inscription of the sign of the cross on the forehead, lips, and heart. I return to the physical expression of a broader social body that proclaims itself a mystical body. Paul tells us that in the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. And at times, I think that feel power around me. Catholicism is not or should not be a religion of force, not of hard mechanical rules, but of stories of paradoxes and enigmatic parables. It is invitation to mystery, not mastery, to communion, not control. It is a religion that fits with what I know of reality, that helps me live honestly, and that helps me set aside my dreams of a less atavistic world in which men follow rational orders and never rebel. Fantasies of control are fantasies of ruling over the dead. And my tortured God is not a God of death, but of new life. When I read the author's words, when I really get into Clay's story about his time in Iraq and his struggle between faith and fantasy of God-driven mission and God-created questioning about his role in that region, I start to think about how we as Americans need to view the Middle East. Some individuals say, that there is a messianic drive in the way in which American presidents have executed policy in the Middle East. Whether it was in 1948, when Harry Truman, widely on the realm of his advisors, coming from that of the Jewish faith, encouraged that president to be the first country to recognize the state of Israel, or Dwight D. Eisenhower's involvement with the Israeli enterprise, or even in the way in which the American people have seen our interventions in the Middle East, not since the post-World War II era when we were in the Cold War, a faction of faith on the American democratic side versus the faithless on the communist Soviet side. But if we go back to the 1770s and 1780s, when American missionaries started to arrive in the Middle East to spread the word of God, or in the 1800s, when some of our consulates would set up American enterprises of higher education, like the American University of Beirut or the American University of Cairo or some of the Protestant schools that exist in Damascus, Syria, or even some of the American colonies, not colonies, but let's call them centers of power that were spread throughout the Ottoman Empire. America's role in the Middle East is not just one of faith in God, but which has largely been attributed to America's mission there for the past 250 years, but it's the faith in our fellow man. Now, I, as an American Jew, have my own connection to the state of Israel and to some other Middle Eastern maladies. Some of my friends that I work with are Christian. Some are of the Catholic faith, the Protestant faith. We have others we've had on this show who are of the Muslim faith. We have others who don't believe in one God, but maybe Hindu or Buddhist. But the common connection of America's Middle Eastern involvement and why it should be important for Americans of all faith or of no faith is the common bond that we have with the oppressed of the Middle East, and beyond that, on the individual to individual level, on the state to state level. Now, I'm not gonna come on this program and give an opinion of what I think that the Saudi government is doing to its own citizens is something that the American government should approve of. But when you have a country that is facing the potential onslaught of its entire people because they find themselves a derivative of Sunni Islam, and they are facing a much greater tyrannical actor as a purveyor of radical Shia Islam in Iran, or a smaller actor that's able to still carry soft power credence like that of Qatar, 
or of another Sunni country like Turkey that's trying to replace the Sunni heavyweights in Saudi Arabia with the former Ottoman-esque power of what existed in Turkey itself only 100 years ago. This is where America has common parallels. We go into the Middle East not to support just minorities that may be of the Christian or the Jewish faith, but we also have to be able to stand up for those who are standing on the side of America. Our faith is not just in ourselves and in our mission, but it must be in our allies too. And just like in Clay's article, where God is willing to forgive American soldiers, or he seeks self-redemption in his own right because of actions he may not have agreed with that the American government had carried out in Iraq, we have to find ourselves sometimes with the willingness to forgive actors of other governments who still stand with America but go off the beaten path, perhaps on a more pernicious route. My thoughts on faith and our fortune to be able to be existent in the Middle East and to take the side of what is good and what is just in that region is not just on a long-term perspective, but looking at the day-to-day actions of our country and our allies, to hold them accountable when they go astray, but to still build a path for them to return to American redemption, to fight on the side of what is good and what is just and what is right in this world. A year-long roundup will follow after these messages with Winfield Myers from Campus Watch. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio. This is Greg Roman on WWDB Talk Radio, Philadelphia AM. We're now joined by Winfield Myers, the director of Campus Watch, a project of the Middle East Forum, for our 2018 Middle East News Roundup. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Winfield, welcome to the program. Good morning, Greg. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Winfield, first of all, Merry Christmas to you and to your family and a Happy New Year. And I hope that you're getting some uh, Georgia's sun down there in, uh, in, in, in your locale. And up here, it's a little bit dreary and misery in Philadelphia, but we'll, uh, we'll make do. Uh, no, we are indeed. I appreciate that. Thank you. So we, we've had a lot of work going on at the Middle East Forum this year in terms of over seven, 800 articles that have been released, in-depth reports like yours of Georgetown that's come out and Campus Watch's other looking into American uh, perspectives. But one of the things 
that I think that really comes through is the divide in this country now between unlikely allies. For instance, we have the far left and the far right praising Donald Trump's exit from Syria. And at the same time, we have moderate Democrats and mainstream Republicans saying that it's a bad move. On on the other hand, we have traditional allies of countries like Saudi Arabia, which are uh, now criticizing them. I mean, we have the Republican-controlled Senate passing a resolution condemning the president of the United States and the Saudi country for its involved support and and direct involvement in Yemen and in other countries. And it even labels an American ally, Mohammed bin Salman, as uh, someone who is a human rights violator. And we have so many different alliances which are now forming on these Middle East issues. But I was hoping that you might be able to bring us back a little bit to talk about the source of America's uh, views on the Middle East from two different camps and how it's affecting us in 2018 and what's going to happen in 2019. First, what is the body politique that's coming out of the university saying about America's Middle East interventions? And second, how is the traditional, uh, let's call it think tank community or community of scholars in Washington, D.C. responding against those who are sitting in their ivory towers at American universities? Those are good questions, Greg. The most striking element coming out of uh, Middle East studies over the past year or so, and and you've touched on it already, has been the turn against Saudi Arabia. For years and years, Campus Watch and various others have attempted to point out how dangerous the influx of Saudi money has been into American universities at places like Georgetown, which you mentioned, and Harvard, and uh, various other uh, universities that have accepted this oil money over the decades. Uh, not so much because it, it necessarily bought them off, but because it gave people who already agreed with an Islamist line a greater megaphone with which they could speak and broadcast their views over a much, much broader area than would have been the case without that money. It uh, gave them money to hire people, to start journals, to do a variety of things to get their, their kind of propagandistic word out. And what we've seen, surprisingly, since uh, last year, is a turn against Saudi Arabia. And uh, not by everyone by any means. You haven't seen it in the places that have accepted uh, large donations. They're not going to back the hand that feeds, feeds them. But, for example, um, when uh, a lot of the people who have turned against Saudi Arabia are pro-Iran, I would argue. And uh, once Trump pulled out of the uh, Iran agreement, um, they were the whole Middle East Studies establishment was extremely upset about that. They uh, loved the Iran agreement. They loved Obama's approach to the Middle East. They're perfectly happy to see Iranian hegemony throughout the region. And once that went into the wastebasket, they turned against Saudi Arabia because, of course, the Saudis are the principal Middle Eastern uh, rival of Iran, and also because of the backdoor relationship that the Saudis have uh, over the uh, past uh, several years, in particular under bin Salman, have cultivated with Israel. And as we all know, uh, for the Middle East Studies establishment, Israel is the bete noire of the, of the whole region. It's the, uh, as so many of them call it, the illegitimate colonial settler state, the Zionist entity. Uh, they constantly put out uh, absolutely unsupported so-called scholarship. It's really just propaganda claiming that there is no um, ancient Hebrew presence in the Holy Land, that this is all just made up, it's just one among many tribes, on and on and on, all in an effort to delegitimize the modern state of Israel as a Jewish state. And 
So I don't think you can be too cynical when you look at the way they have uh, shifted their alliances over the last year or so uh, against the Saudis, still for the Iranians. Uh, they're going to be, I believe, for anyone who harms Western interests in the Middle East. And in as much as they see the Saudis, the Israelis, and others advancing those interests, they're going to turn against them. So to me, that's the most striking change that we've seen over the past couple of years in Middle East studies. So maybe what we can do here now is we can find the true colors of the Middle East Studies establishment. And, and let's go beyond Middle East Studies for a second. Let's call it the anti-Western interest establishment throughout all different ways of American life. We have pundits. We just spoke about Ben Rhodes on the program uh, uh, about 20 minutes ago and how he, now that it's been established that Khashoggi, the journalist murdered by the Saudis, was acting as a Qatari agent. We have those who were for the Iran nuclear deal that are now using their perches of power, whether it be in the press or in their professorships, to try to come out with an anti-Saudi position because it's an anti-Western position, just like as, as you alluded to. And I think that what we have right now is when we strip away the sponsors of extremism and when the Saudis are no longer able to wield from their former lofty perch of being able to use money as a way to buy influence in the American academia, but also now we see the Qataris investing over a billion dollars in American universities. We see the Turks that are underwriting dozens of American Islamist organizations and the Iranians. And I think that Campus Watch is a report coming out about Iranian expat influence over American universities. We won't talk about that right now, but I do want to get you on the show, uh, I think at the end of January to discuss that. How does this actually mark the opinions of academe and their other interlocutors of anti-American messaging? And what kind of uh, a, a veneer has been removed to show their true face? That's a good question, and in particular regarding the Saudis, with whom they were perfectly willing to bed down until it became inconvenient to do that, and now with the Iranians, with whom, they, again, they're perfectly happy uh, to bed down. Uh, as you noted earlier, the, this red-green alliance, the alliance between the far left and the Islamists, um, seems very odd on the surface. You would think that they have very little in common, uh, and in fact, ultimately, if they did take power, they would certainly be at each other's throats immediately, uh, because they, uh, at the end of the day, they have huge differences in the way that they view the world. But one of the things that unites them is, of course, their, their sanctioning of violence. They're perfectly happy to see violence committed for their ends, and their mutual hatred for Western civilization writ large. You, know, you see this from the Bolsheviks forward, and even before them, and sometimes there's a, um, a willingness to... Um, to do anything that is necessary to overthrow uh, bourgeois, middle-class uh, norms, uh, traditional religion, um, the traditional capitalist system of uh, supporting the economy, of, of having an entire world system at work. And they loathe and hate this, uh, whether it's the Islamists of, of the 20th century coming into the 21st now, or uh, the far left. And these people have uh, long since taken control of so many elements within higher education. Uh, the administrations of higher education uh, now, I would argue, in, in some ways, even more radical than the professoriate, or at least as radical, and they make the professoriate possible in so many ways. They're allies. And you, know, you have to worry, what's the, what's the end of this? What's going to happen? Uh, I think you're going to see academia in some ways increasingly marginalized 
increasingly pushed to the side, we've already seen a huge drop, for example, in my old major in history. Uh, there's now um, the lowest number of history majors, uh, at least in many decades, and I, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but history majors and humanities majors across the board have dropped precipitously in the past 20 years. Well, little wonder they've done this to themselves. Uh, it isn't just the, um, the emphasis on STEM research and the emphasis on various other disciplines. It's also because when you offer people nothing but politicized, you know, transparently false, uh, self-serving narratives in lieu of the study of history and man in all his various colors and forms and you know, good and bad, uh, smart people are turned off by that. They don't want to read propaganda. They know when they're being propagandized and they voted with their feet. So I think you're going to increasingly see universities become professionalized, managerial, uh, increasingly more business majors and various um, uh, supplemented by various uh, specialty grievance victimization majors and a continued shrinking of traditional humanities, traditional social sciences, as much to our detriment. Right, and then when we have the shrinking of these departments, those who have been able to be granted tenure are able to grant their acolytes future tenure. So those who came out of the 68 generation and are widely now spreading most of their anti-American ethnic views, their next generation will be those who were trained in even more extreme behavior, perhaps. That's exactly right. In fact, we've seen this, for example, you mentioned Georgetown earlier. Uh, John Esposito, the longtime founding director of the Alba Lead Center there for Muslim Christian Understanding, uh, founded with a $20 million gift by, gift by um, Prince Albalid back in 2005, has now retired from that position. He's been succeeded by Jonathan Brown. Uh, we always say that Esposito was a fellow traveler. He was an apologist for Islamism for the last 30 years. That's why he got the money, that and the, and the, the location of Georgetown and its prestige. But his successor, Jonathan Brown, is a convert to Islam who is married to Sami Al-Aryan's daughter, uh, Al Arian being the man who was convicted, of course, of uh, funneling money into the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, expelled from the country in 2015, and now lives in Istanbul. And so that's, a, that's a, a markedly worse person taken over, even from the likes of Esposito, who was bad enough. Now you have a person who is an apologist for slavery in, in Islam, uh, who really is, is a full-blown Islamist in every sense of the word, perched atop this very prestigious, very wealthy center at Georgetown. And there's your Saudi money still at work. The Saudi money hasn't gone away by any means. It's still there. It's still doing what it was intended to do. Um, it's lost some of its sheen, but it hasn't lost a whole, a whole lot of its power. Maybe we'll see this being uh, supplanted by the Erdogan Center for Islamic Studies yeah. or maybe the uh, al Arian Center for Contemporary Middle East Policy. <laughs> Uh, very well. Nothing would surprise me. I wonder what kind of battle will go over the naming rights, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be a fly on the wall. <laughs> no, most definitely. So, so Winfield, let's get out of the university for a second. We've got about four minutes left here before we have to end the program. But what is your uh, vision for what will happen in 2019 regarding the future of American Middle East policy as it relates to two issues? Number one. What do you think is going to happen in Syria, and how will the academic base reflect that? And number two, what do you think is going to happen with America's involvement in Saudi Arabia? Let's let's start with Syria. Boy, that's a that's a uh, it's an important question, and it's one that's as complex as the situation on the ground in Syria is. Um, what will happen there? I mean, it, it seems now if we pull out, that um, it's going to open the door for the Iranians and the Turks to fill that vacuum. 
uh, to a great degree. I, I agree with so, you, and I'm sure it's going to lead to a lot of op-eds from the Middle East Studies establishment justifying that American pullout and handing over the power of the Turks, the Iranians, and, and of course the Russians. Now on Saudi Arabia, do you think America's through the executive branch is going to double down with our support, or do you think there's going to be a congressional backlash? I suspect both. I wouldn't be surprised at all if the Trump administration does double down with its support and that there is a congressional backlash uh, simultaneously. Um, it is, it's amusing, though, isn't it, to see that suddenly sudden, certain people have discovered that the Saudi family runs the kingdom like a mafia and that if, you, uh, you know, if you're like Sonny or someone and you go outside of the uh, family, you get whacked. <laughs> That's a, what a shock! You know who 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 thunk it? And uh, well, I, 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 our 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 boss Daniel Pipes made the uh, the allusion to this that why would one country that's Islamist be surprised by another country that's Islamist at the veracity of claims that it took out one of its opponents in a mission overseas? Al-Beta wasn't done in a Western liberal democracy. It was done in another country that's also been accused of political assassinations, of extraordinary renditions, and of gross human rights violations. So it's not as if, though, we're uh, really putting uh, you know a good guy and a bad guy together here. We're putting yeah, together... no good guys in this. Right, yeah. but we just have to choose who the rational actors are. Like, like I said beforehand in our last segment, and we've got about uh, one minute to sum up here, Win. But America has to put its faith not in the fantasies of Middle, East, Middle Eastern delusions of grandeur when it comes to maybe uh, uh, asking for Turkey to come back into NATO and then absolving America of its own sins by withdrawing from Syria. But we have to get together with those allies who may have gone off the beaten path and ask them to come back in, not to the family of democracies, but the family of those countries that are willing to help America push its national security interests going further. Absolutely. No, I agree with you. That's exactly what we have to do. We have to look out for ourselves. We and do have to look out for ourselves, delusion. Winfield, and, and, and there, there can no longer be any delusions of grandeur. Winfield no. Myers, thanks for joining us this morning. This is My Greg. Pleasure, Greg. No, no problem, Win. This is Greg Roman on Middle East Forum Century Radio with our last broadcast of the year, December 26, 2018. I want to thank Delaney Janchik for all of the program arrangements, all of the other Middle East Forum staff, our guests, our fellows who have come on the program, and we'll be back in January of 2019 with more analysis, more programming, and more cutting-edge news. Greg Roman signing off.